What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. What I love about Charlie. Charlie is undaunted. He never lets other people's opinions or any setbacks keep him from what he wants to do. Charlie eats like he's trying to get it over with and like there won't be enough food for everyone. I mean, there's 2019 in a nutshell, right? Someone talking about how great Charlie is. And by Charlie, I, of course, mean Adam Driver. Driver had quite a year. Then again, so did Scarlett Johansson. That clip of Johansson from the opening of Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story. Earlier this week, Driver and Johansson were both nominated for Oscars. She definitely came out on top in this battle. She got two Oscar nominations. This week on the show, we'll talk briefly about those Oscar nominations, and we put a bow on the 2019 movie year with our year-end rap party. The scenes that made us laugh, made us cry, or just reminded us what's so great about going to the movies. All that and more. What I love about Adam. <laughs> on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Hopefully, we've given everyone enough time to digest all four and a half hours of our top 10 of 2019 roundtable. Two yeah, parts. That that was a beast. And I'm hoping, Adam, you've recovered from the lacerations mm. delivered to both of us from one Tasha Robinson. Yeah. She was really on fire. I think a full half of those four and a half hours was her telling us how wrong we were very insightfully and very calmly and very eloquently, as she always does. We are recovered, I hope, from that. And we're excited to be back for our first show of the new year and, of course, of the new decade. We are going to reveal the winner of the 2019 Golden Brick Award, our overlooked movie of the year. And Josh, you are going to share some thoughts on the new anime film, Weathering With You, which opens in limited release this weekend. First, though, we're going to have our final word, more or less, on the 2019 movie year. It is our year-end wrap party. We've been doing this maybe six or seven years now, and more often than not, it's our annual live show. Yeah, right where's the audience? In Chicago, just you and me, no one else, even to sit in the studio and hear this. But we are going to go ahead and share some of our favorite moments of the movie year. We'll cover the funniest and most moving scenes, our favorite uses of music in the movies, just a ton of choices in that category in this year, and our picks. Each of us are going to make our individual pick for the best scene of 2019. We are going to start where you should, the beginning. The best opening scenes of 2019. Josh, what stood out for you? So I've been keeping a list, as we always do, all year long. When I see a wow of an opener, I'll just jot it down. Don't forget this at the end of the see, year. See, that's the thing I say I'm going to do every year. It and took then, me, yeah. And then at the last minute, I'm scrambling. It took me a few years to, to learn that lesson. But I also do want to reach out, before we do this show on social media, just to refresh my memory. There may have been things I've forgotten or things I missed and I might have a chance to check up on. So when I did that, there was a lot of love for the opening of Us on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And I agree completely, but as my number one film of 2019, I've already given the movie a lot of love myself. So it didn't go that way. Jojo Rabbit, I heard a lot of mentions for the Hitler mania opening, which I think even people who don't like the movie admit that opening works pretty well. 
on my Larson on Film Facebook page, Aaron Newworth reminded me of the extended opening section. It's much more of a scene, but the opening section of Queen and Slim. This starred Daniel Kaluuya and Jody Turner-Smith as a couple on a first date who get profiled and pulled over by a police officer leading to a shooting. It's the feature directorial debut by music video veteran Melina Matsukas, and that opening section of them on their date has a lovely sense of intimacy and a relaxed pace before the chaos kind of hits and erupts in that film. But setting those aside because my pick, I'm going to go with one that listener Thomas Flight also mentioned on Twitter. It is the opening of The Lighthouse. Thomas said, the first eight shots of The Lighthouse are permanently etched into my mind. I can play that whole opening out beat by beat in my head. So for The Lighthouse, director Robert Eggers, like he did with The Witch, he opens on this indistinct horizon. It's foggy, it's gray, you can't really see, make out what it is. Of course, the added element here with The Lighthouse, it being in black and white and that nearly square aspect ratio of the screen, eventually we notice that it's a ship we're looking at that's coming towards us and it's bringing this rookie wiki played by Robert Pattinson to his doomed assignment at the title station. We do get a few more striking shots, the ones that Thomas is referencing of the ship's prow, cutting through the water, for instance. But for me, it's not just the imagery that makes this opening so great. It's also the sound. There are relentless waves that really we hear almost in the background of every scene Mm -hmm. in this movie. But here's our first hint of them. There's the low thrum of Mark Corvin's score and that damning foghorn. It's pretty much warning both the characters, and us away from what we're about to experience. So I know you would have been fine heeding that warning, Adam, and, and skipping the lighthouse altogether, but that opener was a stunner. You you were still on board at that point. Yes, I was through the first three minutes or so. That's not <laughs> totally true. There are many rewards in the lighthouse, and I think that opening is one of them. You covered a couple of the ones I considered. I definitely thought about that Hall of Mirrors sequence that opens us and that conversation with Andre Holland that begins Steven Soderbergh's High Flying Bird, as well as, of course, Martin Scorsese's opening in the nursing home to The Irishman. But as I really got into honing down a list here and coming up with a number one, I kept coming back to the antenna disaster that opens at Astra. I know that's the movie I kind of love all out of proportion to at least most of the other people on our roundtable. But it tells us really, besides being thrilling, it tells us everything we need to know about Brad Pitt's character Roy in terms of his ability to work under pressure and in insane conditions like that. I had it number four, that opening to Jojo Rabbit. It's going to come up one or two times as we get through this show as well on my list, Josh, and you definitely love that film more than I do. But that oath from Jojo that opens the movie and that conversation that he's having pumping him up with Taika Waititi's Adolf Hitler. And then we go into Kam Gibmer Deine Hand, which is that German version of I Want to Hold Your Hand. Obviously a great music moment candidate yeah. as well. You get JoJo's scream when he runs out the door that's perfectly in sync with the start of the song, just like he was Lennon or McCartney. And yeah, relating the fanaticism of JoJo and the German people to Beatlemania is inspired. And I think when the movie works, and it mostly does, that's an example of what it does best, which is making you laugh and making you uncomfortable at the same time. We're going to get to a few more of those. I also had to think about Uncut Gems. Mm -hmm. From Africa 
to colonoscopy. Yeah. I think Quite it's, a journey. The, it's the most audacious and absurdly magnificent opening of the year, about five and a half minutes long, opening on an accident in Ethiopia in a mine in 2010 and this extraction of the opal that's going to be so central to the movie. And that's happening while everyone's distracted by that injury. And then we push into this gem, this opal that's radiating color and... What we come to recognize as the camera traverses this unknown and intricate terrain, almost like Dave Bowman journeying to Jupiter in 2001, is that we're now watching in 2012 Adam Sandler's character Howie having a colonoscopy done. We actually come out of the video monitor. <laughs> Pretty much letting us know at the start we're going to spend the rest of this movie with an ass. Yeah, that's I mean, true. A, a I mean, fascina- that's, fascinating ass. It's but. such a great joke, honestly, in a lot of ways. But also I think about how the whole movie is so insular. It's how we circle. It's his business. It's his maniacal decisions and bets and everyone around him who's affected by those decisions. And somehow the Safdies through that opening, make this whole thing not just international, but cosmic almost in its scope and scale. And they establish these life and death stakes to it. I love it. We already referenced it at the beginning of the show. I had to think about Marriage Story, the what I love about Nicole and what I love about Charlie sequence where we get Scarlett Johansson emerging from the darkness. She comes into view, the opening shot of the film. And someone on Twitter a while back said this. I really can't remember if it was A.O. Scott or Mark Harris or someone else, but they mentioned that it works almost as the movie in microcosm where the whole film is about Charlie in some way trying to actually reconcile this vision of Nicole and who she is, kind of bring her into focus just as the movie does at the start and actually get a read on her as a person and as a woman. And there's something so angelic and fairy tale romance-like about it. And after we hear Charlie saying the same thing, similar things about Nicole... It just brings us back to this rush of harsh reality where the couple is sitting in the therapist's office and we realize that this isn't a marriage struggling. It's a marriage that's ending. This marriage is pretty much over. And we're the only ones who are going to be privy, we think, to these beautiful expressions of love and appreciation, not the subjects themselves. And there is something kind of tragic about that. I'll just give you a quick spoiler here, Josh. Marriage story is going to come up in every category for me. And it never finished lower than at least runner-up. But my number one is This Is Our Home, the opening of The Last Black Man in San Francisco, one of our finalists for The Golden Brick. And we talked about this. It made two lists in our top 10 roundtable. Actually, not our list. I think we both had it outside our top 10. It was Tasha and Michael who had it in their final 10, but it was definitely top 15 or 20 for both of us. And we talked about the score, Emil Masseri. And I wanted to share this bit of feedback we got from Kevin White, who's from Carroll Stream, Illinois. He says, I'm working my way through the top 10 episodes, and I couldn't agree more with your collective comments on The Last Black Man in San Francisco. I too love that opening montage on the skateboard and the overall score. So I was disappointed when I couldn't find that track on the soundtrack with Emil Masseri's score, which is otherwise great in and of itself. I did some digging, read, I found the scene on YouTube, and found out that the piece that plays during that scene is an older composition by Michael Nyman, written sometime in the early 90s. You can find the whole piece, which is called Musique à Grand Vitesse, here. And we'll link to that on YouTube in our show notes at filmspotting.net. Kevin notes that it's on Spotify and Apple Music as well. It's stellar, and I just wanted to pass along this not as a correction so much as sharing the results of my online research here, which actually took longer than it probably should have. So I've seen this elsewhere. I'm not the only one to make that mistake in assuming that the whole score is Emil Masseri, but that opening number is actually Michael Nyman. And from the very beginning, that opening frame of this movie, it's that young girl staring up at a guy in a hazmat suit. And sound here 
features very prominently in addition to the score. It's just the sound of him breathing. And there's something kind of ominous and off-putting about it, something almost alien. Like, it looks like San Francisco in the background, but also with that suit he's wearing, it's almost science fiction. Like, we could be on another planet. And the camera follows her past a street preacher whose sermon provides the rest of the soundtrack to the opening. The whole thing is about six minutes or over six minutes long. And we see those two main characters— Jimmy and Mont waiting for a bus and then riding the skateboard through the city. It's their environment with all of its familiarities, but also now this sense of foreignness to it. And the combination that the director, Joe Talbot, uses of motion and slow motion and super slow motion that almost turns into these wonderful tableaus of the people they pass is so vivid. The colors in terms of the cinematography also so vivid. There's something at once nostalgic and pleasing about it and unreal. And it's a contradiction that is appropriate for a movie that is full of them. This here? This is the edge, bro! The final frontier of manifest destiny. Last edge of the city. Man, two steps further, you'll be drinking that filthy salt water. But we built it feels like its own short movie to open the film and that makes sense because my understanding is five years prior or something it was kind of the trailer right. that they made to jumpstart this project an earlier version of it anyway and Everything about this six-minute sequence tells you that you've got filmmakers in Talbot as the director and Jimmy Fails as the star and the co-writer who have real vision and ambition, golden brick-worthy vision and ambition. I'll say that. Definitely. Yeah, that was uh, on my honorable mentions list. And actually, I had a note from another listener on Twitter about that opening to Last Black Man in San Francisco. It comes from Keith. He's at Keynote Sneaker. He connected this opening to the film's ending. He said, it also captures the humor of the film and the connection between Jimmy and Montgomery. There's no way to get to the final image and not think back to them sharing a skateboard, tearing through the streets Mm -hmm. of San Francisco. Yeah, it's a great point. So let's get to the laughs. What scenes from 2019 made you laugh out loud, Josh? Well, first off, the laugh in theaters I felt most guilty about in 2019, that drop kick down the stairs in Parasite. <laughs> this yep. is when uh, Jang Haijin, as the mother of the poorer family, kicks the housekeeper, played by John Un Lee, down those stairs. I mean, I immediately kind of, my first reaction was just to let out an audible laugh and then try to shove it back in my mouth because oh, yeah. I felt terrible. And that those sorts of things happen a lot in Parasite. Um, our new production assistant, Kat Sullivan, had a great pick when we were talking about these lists. Merritt Weaver serving divorce papers in Marriage Story. Now you're just taking all just, my picks. It's a wonderful little um, so good. dose of screwball farce in that movie. You know, there are a lot of comic moments in that movie, but I like that one in particular. So totally with Kat on that one. I had to go with, however, I had to go with one of the year's best Comedies, just straight up comedies, okay. naturally for this category. And that was Olivia Wilde's Book Smart with Beanie Feldstein and Caitlin Deaver as best friends who try to make up for their nerdy high school experience in one night of desperate partying. There's so much funny stuff in this movie, but my favorite moment is one that combines a visual gag with comedic performance and sharp character-driven dialogue. And I should note here, the screenplay is by Emily Halpern, Sarah Haskins, Susanna Fogel, and Katie Silberman. So this moment has Amy and Molly trying to threaten a pizza delivery driver into giving them the address for a party that they want to crash. Part of their scheme, 
while ridiculously tying their hair over their faces as a disguise, sort of like reverse ponytails, to mimic ski masks. Oh my god! Oh, is this a Manson family? What is this? No! No! Everything is gonna be just fine. You're just gonna give us the address to where you delivered some pizzas tonight. Oh my god, are you guys out of your mind? How old are you, by the way? Does not matter! Okay, that voice did not make you sound older. So you're basically children, and you just willingly got in the car of a strange man. Do you guys have a weapon? Yes. If we claim to have a weapon, this might be a felony. Okay, so you're using your hair as a mask and trying to rob someone with no weapon. Because the funny thing is, I actually have a weapon. Mike O'Brien as the pizza guy in this scene, so good. He's an SNL writer and performer. I think he also had a part last year in Lynn Shelton's Sort of Trust. Mm -hmm. I especially like the direction he takes what could have been just a throwaway character. He seems, this guy seems both genuinely concerned about them, but then also has this veiled threat going on to his performance. I won't say anything further in case you haven't seen Booksmart, but you should see Booksmart if that is the case. It really was one of my favorite comedies. I don't think it came up at all on our top 10 roundtable discussions, mm-hmm. but probably deserved to. I think I had it slotted somewhere in the early 20s in my year-end ranking, but it's great. Well, there will be some more love for Booksmart coming in this episode. And I will say about it that I didn't love or I didn't appreciate the punchline that we get later in the film that calls back to that Mike O'Brien sequence. But that moment with the hair was truly hilarious. For me, I did think about the great scene with Tracy Letts, who's very good in Greta Gerwig's Little Women as the publisher as well, but he's the deuce Henry Ford II in Ford versus Ferrari. And that car ride that Christian Bale takes him on and his reaction to it yeah. and just the the yelping and whelping and <laughs> tears and laughter that we get from him really is nice. Yeah, he lets it all out there. And I got to say, I like that movie overall. It was, it was just fine, but it really kind of kick-started to life in that scene in ways that much of the rest of it doesn't. So let's, yeah, let's makes he every scene he's in yes. in that film really yeah. kind of has a, an extra electricity to it. So a movie that I hadn't seen before our end of the year, and it wouldn't have made my list, but I caught up with while we were on break is the movie Long Shot starring Charlize Theron and Seth oh, Rogen. Yeah, yeah. And it was just random where one night Sarah and I were at home and we just finished watching something else and the DVD player shuts off and it's on HBO. And I remember thinking, oh, this kind of got decent reviews and I like Rogen and Theron. And after about 10 minutes, I realized I'm going to watch this whole movie till the end. It's pretty good. And this is a family show, so I can't reveal the line that made me cackle for about 60 seconds straight. Sarah will vouch for that. I will just say... That Rogan's character says to his best friend, who's played by O'Shea Jackson Jr., that he got effed, man. And O'Shea tells him what he got effed like. And it's almost one of those lines that it's delivered so fast in the moment, you almost miss mm-hmm. it. And then three seconds later, howling. That's how <laughs> funny I thought it was. And if you want more information about it, I will note right now that we will put all of our picks on our top five page over at filmspotting.net. Just click on lists. If we have clips available, we will link to those as well. One that I was grateful to a film spotting listener on Twitter for was the buying a gun scene from the art of self-defense. And this was Albert, who goes by great Twitter handle. We've already heard one keynote sneaker. sneaker yeah. I mean, that's great, but I don't know if it's better than <laughs> I'll be damned. 
Oh, yeah. For Albert, <laughs> who reminded me of the scene. And I even brought it up to Riley Stearns, the director and writer, when I interviewed him in July because this was such a good scene. It's when Jesse Eisenberg's Casey, who has been beat up very badly and wants to protect himself, goes to a gun shop. And the actor who's the only other person in the scene, the guy working behind the counter, is an actor named Davey Johnson. And it's a pretty straightforward scene. He sells him the gun. He's filling out the paperwork. And then he explains to him that, well, he can't have the gun right now. There is a waiting period. And he just so flatly delivers the line, so a person who's upset with another person can't come in here and buy a gun to shoot that person with. Instead, he'll have to wait a little while before he can do that. And that's just set up... (laughs) The whole scene is like that. Though. It is. I mean, it's, it's so like, like that. He even preceded that by warning him about the statistics. Yeah. No, that's what follows it. Oh, does and it follow it? Oh, okay. That, that's yeah. the part that really kills me where he says, well, I know you mentioned self-defense. Here's a warning. Yeah, yeah. And he says, in a violent altercation, an armed victim is much more likely to be shot and killed than an unarmed victim. And suicide is more common with gun owners, too. Yeah, there You're it is. You're really going to love owning a gun. <laughs> so it keeps is building. It yeah. keeps building. <laughs> That's the yeah. tag. So just that deadpan delivery of those facts was so great. And speaking of deadpan, more Adam Driver love here. The Was It a Wild Animal sequence from Jim Jarmusch's The Dead Don't <laughs> Die, where you've got two zombies who have taken out a couple people inside a diner a couple of the workers and the police show up and as more people arrive on the scene they all ask the same question was it a wild animal (laughs) and this is jarmish's version of screwball comedy basically Mm, a still camera (laughs) no movement at all no cuts people talking as slowly as possible it's basically his girl friday on tranquilizers and it cracked me up my number two is the one you mentioned, the making Ramdan sequence with the kick in Parasite. And you already expressed it, but I just love the precision of it. Again, it's kind of screwball comedy. There's that yep. element to well, it. Physical where, humor, for yeah, sure. Physical humor. You've got Mrs. Park walking into the frame through the kitchen just as this person is emerging from the darkness just in time for Mrs. Kim, the other mother, to slightly kick them back downstairs without spilling the food she's carrying or really kind of impeding her at all from setting it down on the table is the moment funny yeah it is is it horrifying yeah and you described it that kind of discomfort and that quick turn of reactions i laughed and then almost instantly gasped i lasped oh okay that's that's what i'm gonna say yeah there you go (laughs) my number one is serving charlie you said it from marriage story that's the sequence. It's the moment fairly early into the film where Scarlett Johansson's character, Nicole, is now out in L.A. She's at her mom's house. She has her sister. We meet Merritt Weaver as her sister, Nancy. And it's a very tense moment as they're waiting for Adam Driver's Charlie to show up and be served his divorce papers. And Nicole explains that she can't be the one as the person filing for the divorce. It has to be someone else. She tasks her sister with that who's very nervous about it and the whole sequence i adore but there is one moment of humor in particular that i think is the biggest laugh it is for me and probably a lot of viewers it's merritt weaver finally making her grand entrance in the scene as this little drama is unfolding seeing charlie immediately chickening out and turning around like she's going to try to leave Only, of course, to be noticed by Charlie and then awkwardly coming back into the room. And then, speaking of awkward, we have to spend more time with her and Charlie as she looks for her opening to actually do this deed. And that physical joke, just that little bit of that spin that she does, 
is so perfectly set up by every single thing that came before her nervousness, feeling like she's mm-hmm. going to do something wrong or make a mistake. And then Charlie walking in and he's got this announcement of the grant he got that makes it now all of a sudden a happy occasion when it's not really. He just starts eating turkey from the fridge. Even that touch of him eating turkey from the fridge like he lives at the house. And picking up Julie Haggerty, the mother, because he's so happy to see her. And then she tries to pick him up. It's this little game they do. Throws off everything about the tension of the scene that we expect to experience, which in its own way just makes it more tense because then you're waiting for the moment for that kind of happiness to be broken. It really is a domestic farce. It's its own little play for these people who used to work together in a theater company. Each person has this prescribed role and they have a certain job and objective in the scene, but it's not a movie. It is a play. It's live. And when things don't go according to the script, you have to improvise a little bit. And yeah, that Merritt Weaver spin and her asking him at the end if she could start over and kind of do the act again of serving him was one that I certainly will remember as one of the funniest moments of the year. Nicole says you're doing a play. I, I think you'd like it. It's a great unproduced play by this really interesting British writer. So you do an English accent? Yeah. It's more Northern England. Oh. What does that sound like? <clears throat> oh. You want a cup of tea, do you? <laughs> right. Good. Oh, thank you, missus. What is? What's this? Ooh, it's a manila envelope. Ooh, can I start over? There's my name on it. Oh, Jesus. Sorry. You're served. Yeah, that character was one that I, I was hoping would keep showing up later in the movie. You right. know, it's it, it's fine that she doesn't, but it's such a good scene that you can't wait to see more of her. And Merritt Weaver I mentioned this briefly when we reviewed Marriage Story, but I had been unfamiliar with at the start of this year. Happened to see her in the Netflix series Unbelievable, where mm-hmm. she's totally different, playing a police detective. Um, very serious, intense role. She's excellent there as well. So, yeah, I'll keep an eye out for her moving forward. Well, you just think about how inventive and funny that scene is handling a moment that we all know is coming. At some point, someone's going to get served with divorce papers. They've been talking about it. Right. And it could have been handled so kind of in a perfunctory way. And Baumbach really makes it one of the set pieces of the film. And it's all through the editing and the blocking of it. A lot of laughing in those picks, but there was very little laughter over this week's Oscar nominations. Mostly it was weeping and gnashing of teeth. Adam and I are going to share a few brief thoughts when we come back about those nominations. Then I'll have a review of Makato Shinkai's Weathering with you before we get back to the wrap party. Stay with us. Joker's 11 Oscar nominations eliciting some interesting responses. Josh, that was about my reaction as well. (laughs) Wow. A tortured laugh. Joker just taking down the art of cinema with one batch of Oscar nominations. It's it's done. 
we're going to pack up the show. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, why go on? Maybe we should. <laughs> I know you're kind of happy about it, Josh, though you even have to admit 11 Oscar nominations was a surprise. Oh, I mean, if I, yeah, I mean, the film I liked <laughs> for reasons that we might get to again later in this show, but I don't think I would have had it in any of the categories that it did get nominated in, maybe some of the technical ones. I mean, I'm just looking quickly, and maybe when we get to our Oscar uh, preview show, we'll get into a little more of these details, but I did have it when I voted in various critics groups in categories like costume design I had on my list, cinematography I had on my list, some of those areas, but yeah, best picture wouldn't have made my cut, didn't Mm -hmm. make my top 10. Okay, well, I guess that makes me feel a little better. I'm not I'm not completely ready for Arkham yet. Adam. <laughs> not yet. So that was Oscar nominee Joaquin Phoenix, of course, in that film directed by Todd Phillips. He was nominated, Phillips, that is, in the directing and writing categories. And once again, big subject of conversation about the nominees is the lack of representation, just to name some of the most obvious oversights. And this one really hurt the both of us. I know no Lupita Nyong'o for us. I was surprised Jennifer Lopez didn't get nominated for Hustlers. I actually had her on my CFCA ballot in the fifth slot. No Aquafina or Zhao Shuzhen for The Farewell. And I like Aquafina in that role. Not one of my favorite actress performances of the year, but Zhao Shuzhen was for Best Supporting Actress for The Farewell. So that was a disappointment. And you know who I actually voted for again in critics groups for Best Supporting Actor was Sima as Haiyan, who plays Billy's father in The Farewell. I just, uh, the the level of emotions he accessed while also trying to hold so much back mm-hmm. really moved me. I thought that was a great performance. I would have gone that way. Obviously, one that cut me deep was no director nomination for Little Women's Greta Gerwig. And maybe not a surprise if you consider that Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire wasn't even France's official nominee for Best International Picture, which is now what foreign language film is called. It's maybe not shocking that that got overlooked then, but that's a movie that is going to come up here in a little bit for both of us. And the more I look back at it, Even though I didn't have it in my top five, I think it was my number six film of the year. The more I watched a bunch of scenes from that film as I prepared for this list, the more I realized I think it probably is one of the five best directed films of the year. It absolutely is. And and here's an example of why this is still so infuriating that the Academy is not nominating more women is we can argue over, you know, two people who we might think deserve to be in that group. You would probably argue for Greta Gerwig and it sounds like Celine Sciamma. Mm -hmm. I would definitely put I mean, I voted for her. In that category, the point is there are plenty of legit options mm-hmm. for voters to choose from. And plenty of head-scratching ones well, that did get nominated. Well, that that too. But, yeah. I mean, you, it's hard to get into a voter's mind for that, what they liked. But when there are these legit options out there that don't even appear to have been considered, or, or even to jump back to Lupita Nyong'o in uh, Us, it seems like a no-brainer, but I wasn't shocked either because you got a couple biases at play here. The movie came out so long ago in the year. It's horror, technically, so it doesn't have that prestige factor. But then again, you consider Nyong'o being a previous winner. I mean, what is going on there? That That's one that, mm-hmm. again, didn't shock me that it didn't happen, um, but is still pretty galling. Mm-hmm. I know we are going to get into the Oscars more in a couple of weeks when we do an Oscar pick show. We're hoping to have Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune join us for that, as he has in the past. So we're not going to dwell too much more on the Oscars. I should say one thing that wasn't galling and that I should be fairly pleased about, Josh, is my top five films of the year. I can't believe that I'm so in line with the Academy, but my top five were all nominated for Best Picture. Parasite, 
The Irishman, Marriage Story, Little Women, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I am grateful that Little Women at least wasn't completely overlooked, getting six nominations. That one for director, obviously is one that bugs me, and I also think it was surely one of the best edited films of the year, but happy about Florence Pugh and some of the other nominations it got. Yeah, definitely. Florence Pugh is someone I voted for. I think Best Adapted Screenplay was a no-brainer, so I'm glad to see that they honored Little Women there as well. And there were things that I was happy about also. I mean, it is an all gloom and doom. For me, five of the films that made my top 10 of 2019 were recognized in major categories. So Best Picture nominations for Parasite, The Irishman, and Jojo Rabbit. Those were all on my top 10. A Best Actor nod for Antonio Banderas in Pain and Glory. I mean, it it seems like you shouldn't have to say this, but I was worried just because it's a Spanish language performance. Um, it might be overlooked or relegated to the sidelines. So I'm glad that didn't happen. And Best Original Screenplay nomination for my number nine film of the year, Ryan Johnson's Knives Out. We talked about the intricacy mm-hmm. and the cleverness yet also the entertainment factor all coming together in that screenplay. So it had to get that nomination. Glad to see it happen. Yeah, me too. And we are going to share our Golden Brick winner of the year in a few moments. One of our Golden Brick finalists, Honeyland, got two nominations, one for Best International Feature and one for Best Documentary Feature. So that was nice to see. Now on your Facebook page, Josh, you did call out the fact that maybe there were one too many popes this year <laughs> nominated both Jonathan Price for Best Actor as Pope Francis in The Two Popes yeah. and Anthony Hopkins as Pope Benedict mm-hmm. in that film. And I'm calling shenanigans because you still haven't watched that movie. <laughs> oh, you caught me. Yeah, just just Busted. maybe my papacy bias coming yeah. through there. Yeah. I, you know, that, that was mostly a, a response to and of course, I've heard from people who love the film, but I just couldn't be less interested in I'm going to say that you need to turn that negativity <sighs> into positivity. I know. I just gave Sam the same pep talk. I told him it's a breeze. <sighs> Two great actors, mostly just, engaged in great, really fun, smart dialogue it's about challenging just, theological it's issues. It's just not a story that, that uh, I'm really, really interested. But, you know. I like I could, it. For similar reasons, I could say things about, say, the Queen of England, and I'm pretty hooked on the crown. So I got to give. The material, how it's handled, is all that matters, right? So with these nominations, mm-hmm. I'll probably end up looking at how many popes are there? There are two. Okay. There I are two guess, in, this, I can do in two this movie anyway. Oh, and, uh, two, okay. And definitely they were crowning or attempting to crown some familiar faces there as you look at the nominees and you've got Hopkins and Hanks. There are some big names, these heavyweights, and maybe a few of those could have been replaced by some upstarts, but... As I said, I like the two popes, and even though Hopkins didn't make my ballot, wouldn't have been a nominee for me, I think he's very good in the film, and I think Jonathan Price is exceptional, so I don't mind that nomination at all. We will have more thoughts on the Oscars in a few weeks. The ceremony is on Sunday, February 9th this year, and as I said, hope to have Michael Phillips on. Basically, the week before that, we'll do our picks for who will win, even though we have no idea and we'll be horribly wrong. Who should win? We're going to be completely 100% right about that and who should have been nominated. Which we'll probably argue about. Yes. Looking ahead then next week, it's our 2020 preview. Finally going to turn the page and look ahead. Instead of looking back, we are going to share our top five questions about the new movie year. I think part of the fun there with that list is also looking back on the questions we asked Last year and seeing how we did and seeing how those answers came out, I think in a couple of cases, the answers may surprise us. Also in a couple of weeks, actually on Oscars 
Eve. I hope this isn't affecting ticket sales, Josh. Do people need like two days to prepare to prepare for the Oscars? Well, they're probably shopping for their for the dresses for and the, the tuxes, yeah. and yeah, so Doing it, it might, might hurt our ticket sales. It might, but we are going to be celebrating 15 years of film spotting. 15 years at Chicago's Music Box Theater. We are going to talk. We're going to watch a movie. We're going to talk some more. We'll probably have a few drinks. You can do that at the Music Box, and we're excited about the movie which we chose because it's a standout film, one of the highlights of all of the marathons we've ever done in the history of film spotting, but actually from the first ever marathon in the show's history. That's our Westerns. We called it at the time, myself and Sam, our producer now, the Western A Week Marathon. And Josh, as longtime listeners may have noticed, we now only do marathons that are usually about four weeks. Yeah. Before that, they were six weeks. Oh, wow. The Western A Week, eight weeks. Eight weeks. Eight Westerns. We had a lot of homework to do. We had a lot of blind spots in our Western filmography. So it was a great marathon, and we loved Howard Hawks' Rio Bravo. Really a shame that it took us that long to finally see it. And if you're like us and you still have never had a chance, or even if you have, you've probably never seen it on the big screen at a place as beautiful as the music box in 35 millimeter. Yeah. That's going to be an experience. Can can I just admit, now I'd seen a fair amount of Westerns, but Rio Bravo was one I had not seen until I think it was 2017. Right. So a couple of years ago, it had always loomed over me. I knew how much the two of you, you yeah. and Sam loved it. And you potentially not liking it. And it was just one of was those. scary. I didn't want to hurt anyone's feelings. I mean, in some cases I'd like to, but not, oh, not I for know like you do. Rio Bravo. I mean, come on, who wants to be against Rio Bravo? Watched it two years ago, absolutely fell in love. John Wayne, Angie Dickinson, Dean Martin, and that signature sequence, the song, My Rifle, My Pony, and Me is yes. just, uh, we'll get it. We'll get into this. Don't want to spoil too much, but that is the movie. That's now, the movie. It's not just because it's a good scene. It's because right. it does everything the entire movie does. Exactly. And if you've come to live shows before, you know that there's been at least one occasion And if you look back at many old shows, there's been a couple here in studio where I've busted out an instrument. I'm not saying it's going to happen, Josh, but I don't know why. I don't know why I couldn't bust out the guitar. I could try to be the Ricky Nelson character. You could definitely do your best Dean Martin. And I see Sam as Walter Brennan in the corner, (laughs) just making crazy noises, maybe jumping on the harmonica. I was going to say, remind me where the harmonica is. Yeah, that's Sam. He's got to practice. He's got a month. Okay, because I, I could a kill a harmonica. Otherwise, I, I'm known for my tambourine. Yes. No, it's not in the scene, but I could mean, bring one. Who wouldn't want to watch this? Actually, it sounds a little bit like torture. We do hope you will come out to the live event. We're so excited to celebrate 15 years. We're excited to do it in front of a live audience and to see a great movie. All the information you need about the night and to purchase tickets is available at filmspotting.net. There's some links in very prominent places. You can also just click on the events tab or go to the Music Box website, musicboxtheater.com. We do plan to announce some other tour dates in the near future, probably after this Chicago event, but There are at least three other cities I think we plan to hit that are hotbeds for film spotting listeners. So look forward to more information about that whole 15th anniversary tour coming over the next month or so. We did want to put in a plug for our friends at our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. And you know what? Four hosts, great hosts. You heard Tasha on our end of the year roundtable. Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, Genevieve Kosky, also a part of that. Tasha, Scott, and Keith are all going to be in attendance along with Michael Phillips at... The 
music box for our big show. And if you buy one of the VIP passes and want to hang out before the show and have a few drinks, you can do that with myself, Josh, Sam, and Michael, Tasha, Scott, and Keith. It's a veritable who's who of the film spotting family. And maybe if you share what your favorite movie is with Tasha, she'll rip it. You know she will. (laughs) She will do it very nicely. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And she won't be wrong, probably, but she will do it. On this week's show, they pair together a film from the past with a new release. And this week they're talking about 1994's Little Women. That's the one with Winona Ryder as Joe. And, of course, next week they'll get to... Greta Gerwig's new adaptation. I gobbled that episode up right away because I had mentioned memories of really liking the 94 Little Women, but I hadn't seen it since. So I was kind of a little worried. Did I overpraise it at the time? But um, no, Genevieve really came strong for it. And Keith and Scott, they they appreciate it as well. Tasha was Tasha. Yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, it's a really good episode um, and brought back some good memories of that Jillian Armstrong film. So yeah. can't wait to see what they have to say about the Gerwig adaptation yeah. next week. And I do need to do some homework and see that 1994 version before I listen to those shows. You can listen to The Next Picture Show wherever you get your podcast. New episodes come out every Tuesday at midnight. More info at nextpictureshow.net. One must be careful. A tragic fate awaits the weather maiden. Let's make a promise to each other to always be together. There's nothing more gorgeous than a beautiful, clear sky. We do have a quick review here to offer, or at least Josh does. That's from the trailer for Weathering With You. It's the latest from anime director Makoto Shinkai. He also made Your Name, a very good film for 2017 that did make your top 10 list that year. And you did, Josh, just have a chance to catch up with the film, which is opening now in limited release here in the States. Yeah, really loved it. Maybe no surprise. And I should probably start with sort of the scenario here for the film. It's set in modern day Tokyo where there are these historic and really violent storms going on. And it centers on a teen runaway who's run from his village to Tokyo. He's struggling to find shelter amidst these elements. And then he meets what the film calls a sunshine girl. So a young woman who has this mystical ability to dispel a storm in a small area for a short period of time. So together they kind of start this business essentially offering the sun for sale. And as you can imagine, this just allows Makoto Shinkai and his team of animators to really create some astounding storm imagery. So the pleasure of this movie is the billowing clouds, um, the rainstorms that come really violently pouring in, and then the sun that comes afterwards. These photorealistic drops of water that they manage. Water's a notoriously tricky element to capture with animation. It's just extraordinary how they do that. And, you know, your name was many things at once, and you can say the same of weathering with you. Uh, You can probably already detect how it's an echo fable in some ways. It's a, a bit of a goofy teen romance in other ways, and there's some social commentary here as well. So lots of reasons to see weathering with you, animation at the forefront. Um, But yeah, don't miss this one. I think uh, hopefully it'll start at a couple of theaters around the country here in Chicago, as you said, this weekend, and then spread out and more people will have a chance to see it. Well, if that does make you curious about weathering with you, you can get more information, including where you might be able to see it over at gkids.com. What's your favorite style of music? Adult contemporary? No. Should be metal. You ever listen to metal? You mean like hard rock? Metal 
is much more aggressive than hard rock. From now on, you listen to metal. Yeah. It's the toughest music there is. What about hobbies? Is there anything that you feel particularly passionate about other than your newfound passion for metal? Alessandro Nivola, not surprisingly, but I'm going to say it, Josh, shamefully overlooked by the Academy for his performance as Sensei in Riley Stern's The Art of Self-Defense. There was a lot of anger about those nominations. This is the first anger I've heard about his lack of a nomination. I'm out on a limb, but I do think he is wonderful and hilarious in that role as Sensei there with Jesse Eisenberg. The movie The Art of Self-Defense was one of our four finalists for this year's Golden Brick. It's our annual award for the overlooked movie of the year. And and actually 2019, marking the 10th anniversary of the Golden Brick. We initiated it back in 2009 and gave the first Golden Brick to Duncan Jones Moon. The criteria has evolved since then. Back then, it really was as simple as what's the movie we kind of praised a lot on the show that seemed to be flying completely under everyone's radar. And a lot of people even kind of associated it with us and they saw it because of our praise. That's really where the brick idea came from as well, because of the Ryan Johnson film Brick and our relationship to it. That spirit really is still the same behind the golden brick, but we did try to, I suppose, make it a little bit more rigorous, I suppose, in terms of what we are looking for with a brick contender. And really at its core, we're looking for a new or emerging filmmaker, someone like a Duncan Jones or a Ryan Johnson back in 2005. We're looking for a film that shows real vision, real artistic ambition, and it does have to be off the radar. And we're really happy with the four nominees we have this year, the four finalists, I should say. Yeah. In addition to the art of self-defense, here are the other finalists. Madi Diop's Atlantics. This is a romance, but also a police procedural, but also a ghost story set in Dakar, Senegal. Honeyland, the aforementioned newly minted two-time Oscar nominee. It's a really visually stunning documentary about a Macedonian beekeeper. And then Joe Talbot's The Last Black Man in San Francisco, which got quite a bit of love on our top 10 of 2019 roundtable and has already been mentioned on this show. The way this gets decided, it's pretty simple. We get a vote. Producer Sam gets a vote, and then we give votes to the film spotting family. So we're thinking about Michael Phillips. We're thinking about the next picture show host, Tasha, Scott, Genevieve, Keith. And even though the show is no longer on air, they're still part of the film spotting family. Matt Singer and Allison Wilmore, the great critics based out of New York who used to do film spotting SVU, they get to weigh in and the listener vote. And we will say right now, this competition was tight, the tightest ever in the history of the film spotting golden brick vote. And you could look at it because it is the last vote I added into the mix. The last vote that factored into the math, really the listeners kind of swayed this one, Josh. All right. So in last place, according to the listeners was Honeyland directors there, Tamara Kotevka and Lubo Stevanov. It received 11% of the vote. Just slightly ahead of it was Madi Diop's Atlantics with 12% of the vote. Then in second place, receiving 16% of the vote, The Art of Self-Defense by Riley Stearns, which means it is The Last Black Man in San Francisco, directed by Joe Talbot, wins the listener poll with 61% of the vote. And it makes sense, not only because it's a great choice, but it's the film that's been out the longest. It's the movie that maybe of the four we praised the most on the show. And people have really just had a chance to see it. Honeyland and Atlantic's both releases coming late in the year. But Atlantic's a movie that's available on Netflix. And actually, you can see all of those finalists 
on some streaming platform. Yeah, that look. worked out really well this year. Sometimes our nominees are so obscure they can be hard to find. Yes. But yeah, when the vote, when the polls were open, all of these movies were available, which so, was kind of cool. I will just say before we get into a little bit of feedback, I told Sam this the other day, and I don't want to tear down any film because obviously we picked it for a reason, and it was a movie that made both of our top 10 lists that year. But if you look back at the last 10 years of Golden Brick nominees, there's only one. I'll just leave this little mystery out there. There's only one that kind of seems like a little bit of an odd choice. There's another movie from that year that, in hindsight, I wish I had at least pushed for and was our winner. But the other nine, we've got a pretty good track record of anointing filmmakers who have gone on to do a lot of great work. And actually... Even in the case of the film I'm talking about, that director has done some great stuff as well. Well, obviously, it's this award that spurs them on. They, yes, they, that's what I'm saying. It's bestowed upon them, and the pressures of honoring it are so uh-huh. great, they create something wonderful. Sure. Brady Larson, no relation to Josh that I know of, says, Honeyland is this year's true surprise for me. It's astonishingly topical with its themes of environmental stewardship, working class desperation, and the way our world frequently ignores the advice of women and scientists to the detriment of themselves and the world around them. But what makes Honeyland so masterful isn't merely how it speaks to this moment in history. It's how the story unfolds like a soulful, almost spiritual work of fiction. It feels like something that Jafar Panahi or Terrence Malick might make. An allegory about avarice and arrogance, a study of man's greedy, fallible nature butting up against the laws of the natural world, and learning the hard way why that is always folly. If we listen to more people like the main character, the main subject of the film, we'd learn that as much as we try to exploit her, Mother Nature always has the upper hand. I really like that. Yeah, I, I really well said. can see this film sitting right between Panahi and Malik. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brady, not related as far as I know, but I'm guessing by the spelling of his name also, also Norwegian. From the motherland? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Here's Aaron Teachman in D.C. I couldn't vote for Honeyland, not because it isn't a stunning cinematic experience, even on my computer, but because the golden brick to me is just about celebrating what has happened, but heralding what these filmmakers will do next. Honeyland is such a perfect doc about a very specific subject that I just don't know what comes next for these filmmakers, though I will certainly be on the lookout for it. And so we come to my pick. Maddie Diop's Atlantics. All of this year's nominees are beautifully shot and have a lot on their mind, but Diop seems to have the sharpest and clearest focus. She knows what she's angry about, and she knows what she wants to celebrate. Atlantics is a cutting look at corruption, a mournful examination of the lives lost to greed and to despair, but it is also a celebration of love and the belief that there is more that matters than material wealth and seeking a life of ease in a world full of trouble. Atlantics is stuffed with great performances, challenging characters, and vivid imagery coupled with a rigorous moral clarity, and that is why it gets my vote for the Golden Brick in a very rich year, where I'm happy to celebrate any of these films regardless of how the vote turns out. Finally, we have Judah, and this should be easy. It's three letters. E-G-E. Ega? Ega. Ega, Ega yeah. I watched The Last Black Man in San Francisco as a catch-up movie over the holidays with my top films of the year list already pretty set in my head. I was expecting to enjoy it, it being a Golden Brick finalist and all, but I was not expecting it to immediately vault to the top of my list, even fighting Parasite for the number one spot. Joe Talbot's movie possesses phenomenally eccentric and fully realized characters that make the world feel simultaneously lived in and fantastical. Star Jimmy Fails gives a standout performance, but the ensemble is what grounds the emotional and social weight of the movie. This is San Francisco that burns with color and life, thanks to some of the best cinematography of the year. It has shots that worm into your brain long after the credits roll, like a long shot of Jimmy skating down one of San Francisco's legendary hills, zooming out bit by bit to show the massive slope still in front of him. That the American dream is an impossible Possibility for millions of Americans is not a new revelation. However, I have never seen it portrayed so artfully and brutally, with so much joy and pain, with such love and hate as it is in The Last Black Man in San Francisco. 
So tons of praise well there. And with the last black man in San Francisco winning that listener poll, you've already kind of spilled the beans. I have. That's our Golden Brick winner. It is our Golden Brick winner for 2019. Congratulations to Joe Talbot and to Jimmy Fails, as I mentioned, the star and a co-writer. And we're very pleased to have, Josh, an acceptance speech from Jimmy and from Joe. Oh, wow, man. Film spotting just... You know, I want to. What were you doing? I'm doing a video for. Uh, we, we won the Golden Brick Award for film spotting. We did? Yeah. Yeah. What? Yeah, From them? Yeah, 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 yeah. Damn, thank you guys so much, man. Yeah. From San Francisco, man, from the comfort of our San Francisco home, we are just hell excited and super honored to be receiving this award, honestly. Um, yeah. All the love, man. All the love, and um, thank you. Get in here, Fritz. Fritz wants to. She also worked on the movie. <laughs> Thank you guys from all of us and from Fritz. Oh, Fritz. Wait. Fritz, come back, say hi. What do you guys say about the Golden Brick Award? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jimmy and Joe. Congrats once again on your Golden Brick Award for 2019. And thanks to everyone who voted and everyone who watched the films, who took the time. That's really the goal all along. The Brick has always only been about sharing movies that we think not enough people have seen. Well, and I have to say it was pretty cool after we did nominate these finalists and mention them on the show to see each of these titles popping up a little more on Letterboxd in, yeah. in my feed, you know, and yep. you, you just kind of either people would mention they were watching it for the Golden Brick vote or you just knew, why, well, why would someone be watching Honeyland now? And mm-hmm. there's a good chance it was for this. Much more about the Golden Brick, including all the previous winners and nominees at filmspotting.net slash bricks. It's a new year and we do have some new donors we would like to take a moment to thank. And as usual, when we've been off for a few weeks and people are in the giving spirit over the holidays, we have a few names to get to. Josh, we'll rush through them here. Francis in San Francisco, JD and the crew from In Session Film, Connor from Princeton, New Jersey, and Jeff M. in Urbana, Illinois. The In Session Film Podcast, they've got to be coming up on 15 years pretty soon, right? JD's Not quite. been at it for quite a while. They've been at it a while, though. That's true. Silver Club donors, Alfredo in Berwyn, Illinois, Brian Collins Friedrich in Seattle, Millie in Austin, Texas, and Andrew Bennett. He's from Parts Unknown. Also Parts Unknown, Ben R., a new Buck a Show donor. Thank you, Ben, for that. A couple new $5 a month subscribers, Mark Gregor Pierce here in Chicago, Albert in Pasadena, California, Gold Level donors, James in Belleville, Illinois, and Russell in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and finally, Platinum Level donors. I don't know where she's from, but Lisa S. with an incredibly generous donation. Same for Jeff in Savannah, Georgia. Roger Ebert's passing left a big void in quality film review, thought, and discussion, Jeff says. Film spotting is the benchmark of a number of current-day efforts that have rekindled that flame, and it is very bright. Kudos and thank you. Thank you, Jeff, and thank you to all of our donors who really do keep us doing what we're doing. Would you do something with me, Lloyd? It's an exercise I like to do sometimes. We'll just take a minute and think about all the people who loved us into being. I I can't do that. They will come to you. Just one minute of silence. We'll get back to our rap party here with that clip from A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. 
You heard Tom Hanks as Mr. Rogers in what is one of my honorable mentions for most moving moment. This is that fourth wall-breaking scene where Tom Hanks is first speaking to Matthew Reese as the magazine writer, but then shifts a little bit to look into the camera. And eventually that request carries over to everyone in the diner. And at least in the theater that I was sitting in, it carried over into the audience Mm. off the screen. So really a communal experience, but the way director Mario Heller stages it and Hanks performs it, it doesn't become mawkish at all. So definitely consider that as my most moving moment. I also considered a moment that did come up. I mentioned it on our roundtable show from The Farewell, where the grandson, played by Chen Han, breaks down at his own wedding. I also considered a moment from Our Time Machine, a very tiny Chinese documentary that I did throw out there as a golden brick possibility early on in the year. It's about an artist and his relationship with his father who's suffering from dementia. The son stages this play about their relationship, a gorgeous play. The father attends it, but then later on doesn't even remember seeing it. He says something like, I saw it too. How come I don't remember? And just the reality hitting full force in that scene. From Toy Story 4, how about Forky asking, would he carry me? I mean, that that was, I had my issues with Toy Story 4, but not that moment. And then also Talked about it, mentioned it briefly when we reviewed Jojo Rabbit, and it was referenced in depth during our roundtable as well when Rosie, played by Scarlett Johansson, pretends to be Jojo's father. Also, she's playing so many roles at once in that scene, all of them beautifully. My pick, however, though, my most moving moment is listening to Vivaldi at the end of Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Now, I'm not going to spoil this. It doesn't come to theaters until February, so I don't want to ruin anything. The movie itself basically details the relationship between a young woman painter, played by Nomi Merlot, and the woman whose portrait she's hired to make, played by Adele Hanel, in 1790s Brittany. So it's something of a gothic literary romance combined with a portrait of an artist finding her voice. There's very little music in the film, but we do get two renditions of a portion of Vivaldi's Four Seasons. Now, the first time is when Marianne, the painter, plays it for Eloise on the piano, and she describes it for her as she's playing it. I'll just say that most moving moment comes when Eloise hears it again in the final section of the film. I'm not going to describe the context, mm-hmm. but I will say that Adele Hanel basically reenacts the emotional journey of the entire movie in one single take that slowly closes in on her face. I'll leave you to discover the exact details of that, but it's overwhelming. Yeah, it is. And you alluded to this earlier, and I'm in agreement with you. It's a pick that certainly could be not only the most moving moment of the year, but the best music moment of the year. And I think it's one of the contenders for scene of the year, Josh. So a great choice there. My choices, my honorable mentions, I suppose, for most moving moment of the year. We talked about this during our review of The Rise of Skywalker, not a movie that otherwise gave me a lot of warm and fuzzy feelings or got me emotional, but there was something sneakily almost profound about that scene with C-3PO and them considering and then following through with wiping his memory. I got this one from Twitter, at least I think it was Isabel Bishop on Twitter, who reminded me of this, the kiss one of the kisses in 
A Hidden Life, the Terrence Malick movie. This is one that comes at the end of the film. Don't want to give anything away more there. But there's also a kiss with his wife, a stolen kiss that I think is really emotional. And, you know, I love Little Women so much that there are a bunch of scenes like Joe and Beth on the beach. This is Saoirse Ronan with her sister, played by Eliza Scanlon. Any of the sequences with Scanlon as Beth and Mr. Lawrence, played by Chris Cooper. There's one moment where she's playing the piano and he's listening, and then a moment later in the film that Beth is there, let's say, only in spirit, and I think Chris Cooper is just devastating. And one that's not sad at all from Little Women, but one I actually find moving in an inspiring way is the end of Little Women. And for those who haven't seen it, I won't spoil anything more. But Josh, the ones that really were the finalists for me, let's see if you can detect a trend here. And this wasn't planned by any means. This is just how it came out. And I noticed the pattern at the end. I did want to give some love to a movie that we reviewed earlier in the year, both of us very favorably. And at the time, I thought there's really no way this movie won't make my top 10 at the end of the year. It'll still be here. And it was such a good year that it just kept getting pushed down and pushed down. And it's the Christian Petzold film Transit. Yeah. And there's a scene I'll call the dripping ice cream cone, where without getting into the plot details too much, you have... A character, the lead, played by Franz Rogowski, who is on the run. He's a refugee. He's trying to get out of one country and escape. And he meets a woman and her son and kind of does become a surrogate father in a fairly brief time to this boy. And we see him at one point earlier buy him an ice cream cone. And then later he buys him another ice cream cone. But he gets pulled away. And we see that ice cream cone just dripping out in the sun and it tells us everything we need to know about their relationship and whether or not they're going to see each other again. You already mentioned my number four, which is from Jojo rabbit. It's the, you want your father sequence, Scarlett Johansson soot on her face, like a beard yelling at her son. Don't you ever talk to your mother like that again? In this gruff kind of German male voice. And it's just a wonder you've got Scarlett Johansson with real rage there and real terror on the part of Jojo. And I think actually you see in Johansson that character kind of frightening herself, actually, with how angry she really is. But this whole charade ends with her and Jojo dancing together and him putting his head on her shoulder. Wow. My number three is from Ad Astra. And for the people who haven't seen it yet, this is the moment that I danced around and was vague about during our year-end roundtable. I said there was a bit of dialogue that I particularly appreciated. There was a moment I loved at the end of this film. And if you haven't seen it, then maybe you should turn the volume down here briefly or fast forward because I am going to go ahead and spoil it here for the next 15 or 20 seconds. But it's the moment where Brad Pitt's Roy finally does encounter his father, played by Tommy Lee Jones. And it's a moving scene for me as someone so invested in that story as I was as a father and son reunion and one, you know, probably isn't going to end cheerily, but it's more moving as an incredible expression of humanism. You have this dialogue exchange where Timely Jones says my whole life's work looking for life in the universe, life besides us. It's all a failure. I can't leave. I can't give up. And Pitt's character reframes that failure as success and says, no, what you proved was that we're all we've got. We're all we've got. That line for me is one of the lines of the year, not just one of the most moving lines of the year. Here's marriage story again. Charlie and Henry reading Nicole's letter near the end 
of Marriage Story. We're getting here to the moments where it got dusty in the theater. That opening scene I touched on that I love so much where the tragedy of it is thinking no one's ever going to hear. Those two people are never going to hear what the other said. So kind of achingly beautiful about them. And when you realize that Charlie's about to read the letter that Nicole wrote about him, that was already getting me kind of emotional. And then when he reads the line, I fell in love with him two seconds after I saw him. There is a pause the driver takes. I looked at the timing today. It's a 26-second pause. And what he does in those 26 seconds is just just miraculous, Josh. Give him the Oscar. Give him the Oscar for Best Actor right now. He's stifling tears. The son's stifling tears. Nicole Johansson's character is in the doorframe watching. He doesn't know that. She's stifling tears. And I was sitting in the theater stifling tears. In that moment, it's that pause and it's that line reading that just kills me. But my number one, we're going to bookend this most moving moment category with another scene from A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, the Marielle Heller film about Mr. Rogers. And I'll give you that the scene you honorably mentioned is probably the more memorable scene, in some ways maybe the better scene, maybe even a more moving scene, but it's not a more personal scene. And that's sometimes when you think about movie scenes that really hit you hard, it's because they hit close to home. And it's the scene from late in the film where Matthew Reese's Lloyd character has a drink with his dad. And this is Chris Cooper playing the dad. They've had an estranged relationship to say the least, but now the son Lloyd is there with his wife as his father is dying. Lloyd has a young son now of his own, and it's the middle of the night. Lloyd has gotten up with the baby who's awake, and he sees that his father is awake, and he explains that he can't sleep and suggests to his son that he goes over to the cabinet and gets a couple glasses and that they share some whiskey, which he initially says maybe isn't a good idea, but his father convinces him, and they have a drink, and they have a reconciliation in that moment, and there's something really crushing about the revelation that you get there where you realize that there are some things that you can forgive. There are some pains that you can forgive, even though the acts themselves are unforgivable. And you have a father expressing the really sad unfairness of kind of finally figuring out how to live your life and how to actually treat the people you love in your life only when you're out of time, right? That's the tragic irony of it. It's a really heavy moment. It's a cathartic moment for both men in the movie. But I'll just say that moment between father and son, having a drink with your father, I don't know if other people listening had similar stories with their fathers, but long before I was legally able to drink, that was something my dad talked about. My dad talked about because he had that moment with Hmm. his father. He talked about turning 21 and being able to sit down and have a drink with. It meant so much more than just it's not just that you're drinking with your dad, but you are an adult and you're having a moment that only two, I suppose, and probably at the time my dad felt like two men can have, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was something much larger. That drink, it meant something much larger than just two guys talking about you know, sports or the weather or whatever it might be. And you know what? I'll just say it. I actually didn't have that moment with my dad. I didn't have it. It never came. And getting to see it play out here in the movie, as you can imagine, that was a tough sit in the theater, but also one I'm glad I sat through. And you're starting to see, I'm sure you've seen it, but hearing this, why something like Ad Astra and this scene as both are coming up on your rap party list here. I think Cooper in that moment, what, 
he's so good because he's so weak. And it's not just capturing the physical weakness. There's that too mm -hmm. um, because of his deteriorating health. But the the emotional weakness that he's – and the vulnerability that yes. comes with that, that he's finally letting himself show. Yeah. So I think I expressed in our review, you know, some hesitancy about – how easily that reconciliation might come out in the narrative, but that scene absolutely works for yeah. sure. Hey. Right over there. What? Let's grab two glasses. I don't think that's the best idea. How would you know? You don't drink. <laughs> come on. Chris Cooper, I would say, maybe one of the unsung heroes of the year yeah. between his work as a supporting player in both this film and Little Women. One of those great actors who we haven't really seen in a while. We saw him in American Beauty when we took a look at that film again 20 years later as part of our 9 from 99 series this past year, but have missed him. And these two films reminded me of how much I missed him. But also one of those faces, too. When he shows up, you know you're in good hands. And so you kind of For smile sure. a little bit when you see him. So you hinted at this earlier as we move on to our next category, our penultimate rap party category. It's music moment. And you suggested that it maybe was the toughest or the one with the most candidates. That's the case for me. This was so hard to narrow down my favorite music moments of the year. Yeah. Well, you can tell because I had to shift one of mine into yeah. most moving moment from right. Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And there's another one from Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I'll get to that. Well, when and so will I, perhaps. <laughs> I get to my runners up. But let's start. I'm going to start with my pick this time. Starting okay. at the top of my list. The one I'm going with is from a very small film, Diane. And this is the moment where Diane is dancing alone at the jukebox. So Diane was Kent Jones' debut fiction feature. And we did give it a brief review on the show earlier this year. I can't remember if I brought up this moment or not. But basically, it's about a 60-something widow, played by Mary Kay Place, who spends her days visiting and caring for friends, family, neighbors in this Massachusetts town. She's trying to keep the sadness at bay while doing all this, while still being honest about the losses that can pile up at that stage of life. So losses because of deteriorating health or, or even death. Well, in this scene, Diane loses to the sadness. She hits a bar that she used to frequent. She orders way too many margaritas. And then she proceeds to dance the night away alone with the jukebox playing Leon Russell's Out in the Woods. The way the scene cuts from that song and that moment so harshly right into Right Said Fred's I'm Too Sexy also playing <laughs> in the bar, it's just, it's kind of, it's funny, but also mostly it's devastating and kind of the perfect transition in terms of music. Now, Mary Kay Place got a lot of attention for her performance when this came out. And I think this wordless scene is actually her strongest moment in the film. It's a combination, again, of vulnerability, but also there's an element to this of her standing up for herself. She's allowing herself to let go of everyone else's burdens that she's been carrying all movie long. And just if only for a sad, lonely moment, she's just giving herself some time. Um, so the whole thing just feels very true. The music is absolutely 
a part of it. Now, as far as my runners-up, well, the one from Portrait of a Lady on Fire I was referencing is really the only other instance of music in the film besides Vivaldi, and that's when they go to a bonfire. There's a bunch of women from the nearby village there, and everyone gathers together and sings this a cappella song. It's, it's astounding how that plays out. Also, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood have to go with Brad Pitt driving across L.A. with a car radio on. Yeah. I mean, I've driven around L.A. and you usually want to tear your hair out and just get to wherever you're going. I could have been in the car with Brad Pitt for forever, just yeah. as long as he kept driving fast with that music. I love it. And then you talked about the music in The Last Black Man in San Francisco when it was your pick for best opening scene, Adam. Any moment in that film that employs the cover of San Francisco, be sure to wear flowers in your hair. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's so that's, good. I had that when I was writing about it. I had that on repeat just because mm-hmm. it put me so much in the space. Um, the cover written by the film's composer, Emil Mosseri, who you mentioned, and also director Joe Talbot and Daniel Herskadal had a hand in that as well. If you're going to San Francisco. It's so good. And I had completely forgotten about it, even though I know we touched on it during our review. See, I need to I need to take better notes as we prepare for the rap party during the year and not try to cram it all in. That said, I still found plenty of music moments to consider. I'll start with two movies that I didn't particularly care for. The first one, certainly not as much as a lot of people did. And it's the movie Hustlers. But The scene with Jennifer Lopez when we are introduced to her as Ramona dancing on stage to Fiona Apple's Criminal, that truly is the best scene in the movie. And the Elton John biopic Rocket Man. Josh, what did you think of Rocket Man? What's Rocket Man? Mm. Okay. Well, Crocodile Rock is the song he is performing. Taron Egerton as Elton John. I believe it's the song at the Troubadour. It's his big coming out party in L.A. And he opens with that song. And during that sequence, one of the better stage sequences in the movie, as he's playing the piano, he's just rocking the Troubadour so much. He's blowing the roof off the place almost literally. He actually starts to elevate in the air. And there's some great use of kind of slow motion and the rest of the crowd elevating with him. It's really good. It's the best sequence in what is otherwise for me, not a particularly strong movie. I loved that DJ aha on Twitter reminded me of the mother country sequence in Apollo 11. Did you ever see that? No, I didn't get to that. This was one too. I was really bummed that it didn't come up in our end of year roundtable because it's a top 20 movie for me. My favorite doc of the year. Michael actually had it on his top 10 list until a last second swap. But there's a moment where I think it's the seventh day. I believe they're finally getting close. The astronauts getting close to returning to Earth. And as at DJ AHA explains it, he says a 2019 moment to consider is in Apollo 11 when Buzz Aldrin's cassette player is floating while playing a song called Mother Country. The soundtrack then switches from Buzz's tape player to a full non-diegetic montage of the crew. It really is awesome. It starts, as he explains, inside the capsule, and he's listening to the song on a tape player that's floating, but then the filmmaker, Todd Douglas Miller, puts an entire sequence with the rest of the crew as they're gearing up for the capsule to return home to that soundtrack. 
My other favorite documentary of the year was Martin Scorsese's Rolling Thunder Review about Bob Dylan. And my favorite scene in that film, my favorite moment overall is when we see Bob Dylan performing a rocked up version of The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, one of his great folk songs. Only here, it's aggressive, it's angry. He's just spitting fire during the song and it's truly wonderful. Hattie Carroll was a maid of the kitchen. She was 51 years old and gave birth to 10 children. She cleaned up the dishes, hauled out the garbage, never sat once at the head of the table. She just cleaned up all the food from the table and emptied the ashtrays on a whole other level. Got killed by a blow, lay slain by a cane that sailed through the air and came down through the room doomed and determined to destroy all the gentle and she never done nothing to William Zanzinger. But Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Josh, certainly a movie I couldn't overlook for this list. You mentioned the Vivaldi sequence as your most moving. But yeah, that campfire sequence where we see the two characters gazing through the fire at each other and her dress catching fire as the locals sing this what seems like a folk hymn, but it's also got this wonderful choral arrangement to it. It's very moving, very stirring, I should say. And with that, I'm going to share a voicemail. This is from a longtime listener, Josh Youngerman who's in New York, and he also appreciated that scene and really appreciated another film that has several great music moments for 2019. Hey, Adam and Josh. This is friend of the show, Josh Youngerman, calling in to give my music moment for 2019. I um, want to bring up uh, Wild Rose, and it has a number of moments, but um, the moment that I keep coming back to is the scene in the Grand Old Opera. It's the very first time we see Rosalind perform live on stage, and I think up until that point, the movie kind of hinges on how good of a performer, at least live performer, Rosalind is, and we see her get up on the stage after a sort of day in court, and her publicly appointed sort of lawyer is there, and we see her perform Outlaw State of Mind, and she's so electric and so incredible. And she's been so annoying in that scene prior. And she's also annoyed the lawyer so much. And yet the lawyer who doesn't want to be there can't help but uh, be drawn in by how talented of a performer she is. And she really makes that song, which is a kind of familiar song, feel so alive and new and fresh, like I was hearing it for the very first time. I keep a red bar on my Um, So I love that scene, and I love Wild Rose. Hope you guys have a great uh, New Year. Thank you, Josh, for that. He's going with that outlaw state of mind performance in Wild Rose. And if you recall, Tasha had this film in her top 10 of the year, and I said something like, there are at least three music moments in this film that have to be considered for the rap party. And really, it's more like four or five. Josh just mentioned that performance, but the end song, Glasgow, is so good. And there's an audition sequence where Jesse Buckley's character sings 
to a computer. She's just recording herself and sending a video to someone with the family that she works for as a maid. They're looking on and really kind of in awe of her. But my favorite, Josh, is where she performs the country song I'm Moving On while she's vacuuming. And we see how much she's getting into the music, how this country music really just infects her soul. And Tom Harper, the director, does something really fun where as that scene is coming to life for her, it comes to life for us as viewers. She passes with the vacuum and her headphones on the staircase and we see a drummer at the bottom of the stairs playing the song. And then as she glides through the room, we see an accordion player and then we cut to an overhead shot and the whole band is there in the living room with her performing that number. So I'll still push for people to see Wild Rose if that's one they haven't caught up with. My number three music moment of the year is from Booksmart, a movie I liked, not quite as much as you, Josh, but it's the pool scene. And it's the best needle drop of the year, hands down. Honestly, I even considered it for my number one music moment. The band, I believe, is called Perfume Genius. The song is called Slip Away. And it's the moment when Caitlin Deaver's Amy, she has a crush on Victoria Ruesca's Ryan, is following Ryan as they're going out to the pool. And Ryan basically says, you know, jump in the water with me. And the song is already playing as they're walking out of the house to the pool, the camera tracking them towards the water. We see Ryan stripped down. We see Amy stripped down. Then the camera, Olivia Wilde, the director, cuts to an underwater shot of Ryan jumping in the pool and then Amy plunging down right as all the instruments crash together in the song. And it's a scene where we see Amy completely out of her comfort zone and she's embracing the freedom of this moment and the joy in literally just jumping into something, something she otherwise normally wouldn't do. Being Alive, Marriage Story, the Sondheim performance by Adam Driver at the end, of course, my number two. And I'll just throw out a line here from Ignati Vishnevetsky writing for the AV Club in his scenes of the year, said, Being Alive stands apart as the most moving of all the Sondheim references, not just in that film, but there were several others throughout 2019. He says it's the most moving. It also perfectly conveys the central irony of the story that Charlie and Nicole can find such deep feelings in other people's words, but can't communicate with each other. But the number one, you knew it was coming, Josh. We touched on it back when we reviewed the movie. We felt like it was going to be a key contender for this category at the end of the year. And it's Becky something, Elizabeth Moss as Becky something performing the Brian Adams tune, Heaven, from the Alex Ross Perry movie, Her Smell. She's asked by her daughter at the piano to play a song that makes you think of me. And it's all done in one shot in profile, about five minutes we see Moss perform this entire cover song. And it's funny, she even says to her daughter, this one's a cover. It is this 80s hit. It's a song I certainly remember from my childhood. It's a perfectly fine song, maybe a little bit of a cheesy love ballad, a song a lot of us who were alive then probably took for granted and got tired of hearing on the radio. And Moss and Alex Ross Perry find something really authentic and moving in it. And you recognize, too, that it's a song this is a movie set in the 90s. It's a song that Becky probably listened to when she was roughly about the age of her daughter in that scene. And I just appreciate how it's not a tacky moment. Could have been a treacly moment. It isn't. There's no crying. There's no close-ups. It's just a mother and a daughter sharing this moment together. And in a film that 
has up to this point, this is in that big second act where she's now recovering from drug and alcohol abuse and other issues. That first part's so frenetic and so filled with energy and these long takes mixed with these cuts. And you just feel like you can never get away from her and her kind of mania. And here the movie just completely goes still and lets us watch this really talented performer perform for her daughter. There was only you and me We were young and wild and free Now nothing can take you away from me We've been down this road before But that's over now You keep me coming back for more Baby, you're all that I Can we just go back to the Oscar snubs real quick? And how does Elizabeth Moss not get nominated for this performance? I mean, she absolutely makes the movie. She makes that moment. You're right. And I could have almost seen her having what happened with Scarlett Johansson, getting the best actress for her smell and then best supporting actress for us because and two very different performances two very different so performances. funny in us and, yeah. and then doing this in her smell which is that scene every scene in the movie she's fantastic yep okay speaking of fantastic it's time for the most fantastic scenes of the year of course if you look back at our choices for these other categories a lot of them could be in the running for overall scene of the year as well but Josh how did you narrow it down well I think we may have a battle of the staircase scenes here, Adam. I knew this was coming. (laughs) I was kind of hoping it wouldn't come. Final category. I just, I couldn't deny it. My scene of the year is Joker's climactic staircase dance. No, you could have. In one of the most divisive films of 2019, Joker, just indulge me now for for a minute here, Adam. I know you've heard this before. You can twiddle your thumbs, roll your eyes. I previously waxed Rhapsodic about the formal brilliance of this sequence, but I want to revisit it just for those who didn't listen to our contentious Joker review. At this point, Arthur has gone full Joker. So he's fully embraced his madness. He thinks he's who he has always been meant to become as Joker triumphantly striding to the top of the staircase. Again, we're seeing him from the bottom of the stairs looking up, which is very different from the first time we saw this staircase in the film. Much earlier, we looked down it from the top to see this dejected Arthur Fleck trudging up toward us. And the drab buildings on either side, also the gray architecture across the horizon in the background, they trap him in. But this time, in the scene I'm picking, he stands more to the top of the stairs, Above us, coming down, the sun is blazing behind him, and he begins dancing his way down to the sound of Gary Glitter's cheesy and carnivalesque rock and roll part two. We should and say I do think, convicted pedophile well, Gary Glitter. I was going to say, okay. I do think there are maybe a couple reasons for the choice of that song. As I said, it's extremely cheesy, and this may be where some undercutting of the character is already going on. If you know that, if you're aware of that, clearly this is not a song or an artist to admire. So if this is something that's in Joker's head already, he's being undercut a bit. Or or maybe it's just a tasteless choice in a tasteless movie. One of the two. It's it's a tasteless song. I'll I'll admit to that. Now, for the Joker, this is a mountaintop moment. 
But I think more undercutting comes when we see those two cops appear at the top of the stairs because the music shifts. We get rid of the song in his head, the song he thinks is cool, and the more ominous score takes over. He goofily scrambles away. And as I argued, I think there's some sophisticated visual irony going on here. Keep in mind, again, Joker's direction. Whereas in the earlier scene, he was dejected but rising. Here he's triumphant but descending further into Gotham's pit. Now, whether you like the movie or not, the scene has this strange power to it. People have just become obsessed with it. It's registered in the larger public consciousness to the point that the Bronx location has become this tourist hotspot that led to one of the Onion's best headlines from last year. I know I saw I you, think I shared you it. shared it yeah. on Twitter. It's a picture of a double-decker bus careening down the staircase. <laughs> yes. The headline, bus tour takes fans down iconic Joker stairs. <laughs> that was great. For me, it's the scene of the year. Because of that impact, the impact it had on the movie year, because of the filmmaking, I'm sorry, Todd Phillips haters, I'm not going to say he's a genius and all his other films are brilliant and, and he's someone that I'm going to rush out and see every movie he does from now on. This sequence is pretty brilliant. And I love it because it does what the entire movie does so well. It serves up this complicatedly toxic time capsule for an era of misguided rage. And I really think the apoplectic reactions to its Oscar nominations, they're all part of the stew. It's kind of fitting that uh, the reactions would all, that, that Joker is being something of Joker in this larger movie universe that we all live in. Again, not one of my top 10 films of the year, but one that I think is getting the target of a lot of misguided rage itself. Hmm. Well, it's a film that, and this will sound like a snarky dismissal, and I mean it more as just a statement of fact. It's a film I haven't given a second thought since we talked about it on the show. Not for a moment. That's fine. And because of that, I've kind of promised myself I'm not going to sit here and just lob grenades at it and talk about how terrible I think it is without having something more insightful to offer. So maybe by the time we get to our Oscar show, that will happen. But that would require me to actually watch again, the movie again. But you don't have to, you and don't I have have to bother no yourself interest. with that. It's it's an argument for the scene. I mean, we, yeah. we hashed out the movie, but I, I undeniably, and this that was, is a scene that will mark that 2019. Was, we talked about it during the review. That was a scene for me. I understand the argument you're making. There's validity to it, that was one of the moments in the film that actually turned me off the most. That was one of the moments well, yeah. I thought was if the you, weakest, one of the biggest shortcuts if you that read Todd it, Phillips took as a filmmaker. If you read it as one simple way, I can see that. But okay. if, if you're looking at what is possibly going on, and I think it's there in the filmmaker, I think it's pretty complicated. Let me run quickly here through my runners-up, though, for scene of the year. One goes back to Captain Marvel much earlier when she comes into her own powers and she's just pissed and glorious. I love that moment. The scissors... And ballet that Michael Phillips did not care for. Mm -hmm. He mentioned on a roundtable show from us. I thought it worked really well. Another dead don't die reference here. When they're at the end trapped in the police car and they're bathed in red, white, and blue. Just a little bit of uh, visual social commentary going on, I think. A Hidden Life, you've mentioned earlier for our rap party, that motorcycle ride that comes, I'm not even going to give the context for those who haven't seen it, but uh, the motorcycle ride towards the end of A Hidden Life mm -hmm. probably was my actual runner-up. And then, of course, I need to mention Portrait of a Lady on Fire one more time, rushing to the cliff. A little different than the scene you talked about on our roundtable show. Yeah. Uh, I think this is earlier when uh, Marianne is chasing her because yeah. she's afraid she's going to jump. It's their first walk together. Their first walk together mm -hmm. and and we haven't seen her face yet and this actually is the first face reveal when she just stops mm -hmm. at the cliff's edge and turns around and we get to see this face we've all been waiting for. Yeah, and I can't remember because it's been a little while since I've seen it whether or not we fully know in that moment 
what the assignment is. I can't remember if she has been we do. in conversation with the mother yet, but yeah. certainly by the time we get to the second scene, which is one I definitely considered for scene of the year as well. It's an honorable mention for me from Portrait of Lady on Fire. It's that one we talked about on the roundtable where she's now just trying to steal any yeah, glimpse of her she possibly can, the, the profile profiles. and the looks that she's being given and how she's trying to process and remember all that. I also thought about another scene from Apollo 11, the documentary I mentioned a little bit earlier, and it's early in the film. This is a film that doesn't otherwise try to get into contextualizing the Apollo 11 launch, the mission itself, the men who were in the capsule, the three astronauts, Buzz Aldrin, Michael Collins, and Neil Armstrong. But in those first few minutes of the movie, we hear a line from a newscaster saying how they're going to take with them into space different objectives that are going to be very hard to pull off. They have that burden, but they're also going to carry with them a great many things that I can't remember the exact wording he uses, but basically that are harder to define. And Todd Douglas Miller uses that line as the spark to just give us in a minute and 45 seconds this little montage where we get introduced to each character as they're getting ready for the launch. So we see the people attaching different things to Neil Armstrong and we flash to baby pictures and family pictures, a wedding photo, previous test flight footage, uh, different launches that he's been part of each astronaut one by one in that montage we just get a glimpse of each one as a man and it's the only glimpse of them as a man we're going to get in the whole movie and it's really all we need the phone call to joe hoffa de niro in the irishman Mm. i think has to be thought of as one of the scenes of the year also go to the irishman and this is a category i almost was going to suggest to you and sam when i was preparing that we should add into the mix but i know there'd be some overlap with other categories we should probably at some point just think about lines of the year. Hmm. When you think about the film, what are the lines of dialogue? Yeah. Not just maybe the visual moments or other scenes, but the lines of the year. And for me, it is what it is. Sure. Of it course. is what it is. Is one of the lines of yeah. the year. There's just no question Absolutely. about it. That reminds me, did we early on do shot of the year as well? Like I think just maybe a single we did. image. Yeah. So that granular focus. That's I like. it. There are a bunch from Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to consider Sharon Tate, played by Margot Robbie, watching herself Mm -hmm. on the big screen. That scene with Rick and the young actress, played by Julia Butters. His redemption scene where he acts with her playing the bad guy, I think is very good. Those neon lights all flickering on kind of near the end of the film as well. But the ones that really stood out to me as contenders, Josh, I go back to The Last Black Man in San Francisco and the scene where Jonathan Majors, and one of my favorite performances of the year as Montgomery watches the five guys from the neighborhood from across the street as they're having a confrontation, two of the guys in particular, and he's just observing and studying them. And then he comes over and starts telling them how they're all doing marvelous work, but they could go deeper. And he starts talking about Chekhov (laughs) and Brecht and Stanislavski. But he says to the one guy who is really kind of under the most heat, he says, I believe you. I believe you. And it's this great moment where he's validating him As a performer, even though that's not how he views himself in the scene, as a man, he validates them all, actually, and their anger, but also somehow manages to diffuse the tension between them at the same time. Guys, guys, it's great, it's great, very good, very good, guys, real, very good, every, very good, 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 excellent, good, hey, great news is you're all doing marvelous work. Congratulations, it's not easy. 
I believe you. But I know it can be deeper. What are you talking about? Hey. Remember Stanislavski. What are you doing, man? Gratowski. Oslavski. Chekhov. Brett. These are the great. I'm confused, bro. My number four is another line of the year, but I'm so lonely. Joe March, delivered by Saoirse Ronan, that sequence talking to her mother where she explains how women need to be taken more seriously and allowed to be more than just romantic creatures, but she's so lonely she has to admit that. My number three, I'll simply say from Knives Out, my house, my rules, (laughs) my coffee. I said it was maybe the shot of the year. I think that is, for me, the shot of the year. I told you Maru's story made every single list. I'll simply say the argument that's been much hashed over on Twitter and elsewhere. But yeah, you're right. You called it. I think we reviewed Parasite right after Joker. And I made the kind of throwaway comment that this is a movie that had the true staircase sequence, the really great staircase sequence. And for me, you think Joker is one of the movies of the year for a lot of good reasons. And that sequence stands out. And I would argue and our roundtable show would validate that Parasite is the movie of the year and that escape scene where we watch the family as they finally get out of the house of the home that they've kind of taken over and they try to get home. It's a father, son and daughter and they descend down. First of all, before we get even to the staircase, they're just coming from the park's house, which is up on this hill and the lavish home. It's so protected and they're going down into the squalor of the city and their home, which we're going to see in a little bit, is completely unprotected. And then we get that great long shot of the stairs that they do have to navigate down, which I think takes them into like a subway station. And it feels to me almost like something out of Metropolis, where they're descending into an underground city, something completely different from their normal environment. And there's more. There's more descending down more stairs, down hills. And then they get to their house. And just the imagery of that house, their house that they return to being almost completely submerged by the water from this torrential downpour that starts, of course, right as they escape the park's house. Actually, you know what? We have a listener. Longtime listener, Jeff Milo in Ferndale, Michigan, who will help us with some of that imagery. The image I'll never get out of my head is of the daughter sort of perched upon the commode with sewage spewing out from under the lid, grasping her, her device, and just fatalistically lighting up a cigarette. The entire blood sequence is... is really just so visceral and with the father walking through their living space and just picking up items from their life and realizing that they're all ruined uh that was just such a a, an emotional powerful moment and what a film so yeah just that that image of a human being in that moment with a phone and a cigarette on a toilet in those circumstances, the entire film was, was brilliant, but that's my most moving moment of 2019 and a, a belated Happy New Year to you all. Yeah, that image of the daughter smoking a cigarette on the toilet that's backed up and overflowing is so clear in my mind. And then the overhead shot of this kind of makeshift raft, whether it's a door or part of a wall, but you see them on that as they try to find a shelter. And this whole sequence is about seven minutes long. And... Just that part alone, 
before they arrive at the shelter is enough for me to be the scene of the year, just in the way Bong Joon-ho, the director, renders it. But watching it again, Josh, I really realize how potent the culmination of that scene is when they're at the shelter. And the son asks his dad what his plan was, because the dad suggests earlier as they're trying to escape that he has a plan, how this is all going to get fixed somehow. And he says to him, you know what kind of plan never fails? No plan at all. You know why? If you make a plan, life never works out that way. Look around us. Did these people think, let's all spend the night in a gym? But look now. With no plan, nothing can go wrong. And if something spins out of control, it doesn't matter. Whether you kill someone or betray your country, none of it matters. Got it? That is, in a nutshell, this family's ethos that we've seen, kind of make no plan, just roll with it. But it's this also very cynical, obviously, and kind of bleak, but honest assessment, I think, of how not in control of our lives we really are. I think there's something genuinely truthful at the core of what the father is saying. And I think if you're considering movies and moments that sum up what it feels like to live in 2019, to be alive in 2019, that line, unfortunately, gets right at it, how futile it is to try to dictate how things will turn out, how chaotic it all really feels. And I'll add that as fundamentally truthful as maybe that sentiment is, we do potentially see in the son, who asks him that question, a challenge later in the film to the meaninglessness of it all. And I think then that cynicism actually turns into hope that we get by the end of Parasite. Yeah, he's on second watch, the son to me was, moral conscience isn't maybe the right word, but it registered more as his story Mm. to me, the film, and Mm -hmm. also his wrestling with just those sorts of questions came to the fore. Um, And that, that first part of the section you're talking about where they are fleeing and descending through the storm, um, is just amazing. And I want to say on the Slate Culture Gab Fest, where a friend of the show, Dana Stevens, is on there, also with Julia Turner. I think it was Julia Turner who was talking about, oh, this is a while ago now, but Snowpiercer being about class warfare, uh, horizontal, mm. a horizontal movie in yeah. the train. And then she was talking about one, wondering whether Bong Joon-ho's movies are always kind of spatially designed. Um, and and I, don't even, I don't know if she got it's to this or insight. it just struck me later how this being vertical, exactly what you're talking about. And think about all of the shots in the movie mm-hmm. that descend, not, the, not just the different staircases right. we see from going to the basement yes. to another one to the staircase leading just into the property, mm-hmm. how it's elevated. Yep. So, yeah. Definitely, you know, a strong feature in the film throughout and something that comes really to the forefront um, in that sequence. And yeah, I'm I'm obviously a huge fan of Parasite, my number three movie of the year. In, in my world, Adam, Parasite and Joker can gleefully dance down the staircase <laughs> together. How dare you? They're, they're both, hey, they're both kill the rich movies. I mean, they have that in common as well. I suppose they are. If you missed any of those picks, you can find our full list, our favorite scenes of the year at filmspotting.net. Just click on lists at the top of the page. Also on the website, head over to our show archives. You can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going all the way back to 2005. That's right. Film spotting has been around for 15 years, and we are celebrating with a live show in Chicago, February 8th. Come join us. Tickets are also at filmspotting.net. To order film spotting t-shirts or other film spotting merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And to subscribe to the weekly film spotting newsletter, Visit filmspotting.net slash newsletter. We are on Twitter and Facebook. Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. For 2020, 
Sam has decided after a little bit of discussion that we are no longer going to be so violent with this little game we sometimes play. So we're going to soften it. This is not a threat. It's not a threat with a deadly weapon. But you have to see one, Josh. Do you in wide release see Robert Downey Jr. in Doolittle or do you see Will Smith and Martin Lawrence in Bad Boys for Life? Well, let's let's give this some stakes. Uh, let's say and yeah, we we've learned from the art of self-defense scene about, you know, the dangers of the dangers. play. So yeah. let, let's leave that alone. Adam, your children don't get breakfast tomorrow. Unless you go see one of these movies. Yeah. So you're going to have to choose okay. if you want them to eat. It's a breakfast choice. <laughs> it's it's, a, it's a, a life or, 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 you know, growling stomach situation. Yeah. I've got a clear answer. You've got a clear answer? Yeah. We're going to Bad Boys for Life together, aren't 100%. We? Oh, my gosh. This wasn't even. It's not It's not a question. I don't know no. what Sam's thinking, but there's just no chance I'm seeing Doolittle. I've suffered through both of these trailers, yeah. and it's still completely clear. Okay. In limited release, the movie you recommended, Josh, the animated film Weathering With You. Next week on the show, we will share our 2020 movie preview, our top five questions about the new movie year. If you have a question or a movie you are most anticipating, feel free to send us an email, feedback at filmspotting.net. We might just share it on air. You can also email us an audio file or call our voicemail line 312-264-0744. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Welcome, Kat. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board and special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.